to believe and to receive. Lord, help build us up and edify us so that we may draw nearer to you. Lord, we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you think about the birth of a newborn baby, many things take place, both exciting and having to cross off all the dots and T's. There's the initial look, who does baby look like? Does it look like mom or dad, older siblings, grandma, grandpa? Then there's the practical end of having to make sure the baby is healthy, having to, to go through all of those steps. There's also that of filling out the birth certificate, making sure in the tiredness of the moment you fill out everything accordingly so that the baby is rightly named, the baby's rightful parents are put on the rightful spot. All of those little details come in with a baby's birth. And then a greater measurement begins. Early on as parents, you begin to, to wonder, who does my child act like? Do they get their stubbornness from mom or dad? Do they have the attitude of an aunt or an uncle? Or maybe it's grandpa or papa. Whatever the case, their, their character begins to reveal itself and show characteristics of other family members. And by that, they begin to be known a little bit. Have we ever thought of the Son of God as He came, as He was born and laid in a manger, who it was He represented? That's where John 1, 14 through 18 takes us this morning. We see Jesus, the Son of God, come and be born as the Son of God incarnate, that is, to be made flesh. But he reveals the characteristics of another, his Father. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to John 1, 14 through 18. As you're turning there, just a, a recap. The, the last few weeks, we've been in what is still the introduction of the Gospel according to John. Verses 1 through 18 are, are the primary introduction to this gospel. But yet they lay out some important and crucial facts for us. They lay out exactly who is this Jesus. And it's important for us to consider that even still this morning. Who is this Jesus who has come to us? Is he any ordinary baby? Or is he something much more? So if you have your Bible... Let's follow. I ask you to follow along with me, either in your Bible or on the screen, of John 1, 14 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord from John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. And cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
So here's what I think is the main point in taking us through John 1, 14 through 18. God, the Son incarnate, reveals to us the fullness of the glory of the Father as he dwells among us. Let me repeat that, and it's on the screen. God, the Son incarnate, reveals to us the fullness of the glory of the Father as he dwells among us. We're going to look at this in two points. Point number one, the Son and his glory. And point number two, the Son and his superiority. So let's look at point number one, the Son and his glory. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The same word who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God, has become flesh. He has become the Son of God incarnate, that is, made flesh. Of course, this person, this one, this word is Jesus. Jesus has come to take on flesh and to dwell among us. And here's the reality. This is a complex thing. The incarnation is a complex thing. And yet it's important, not only for us as Christians, but for anyone exploring the claims of Christianity to grasp. It's crucial because here's the thing. If we miss who Jesus is in the incarnation, we miss who he is coming in salvation. And Christian, do you know and understand that one, the Bible makes clear, though it doesn't spell it out, that church membership is a biblical idea, that there is no thing according to the Bible of a Christian apart from a local church as a member. And here's why I draw this out this morning, because part of that responsibility as members, we're told in Titus, we're told in other places, is to guard sound doctrine. To guard the truth of Scripture. And how can we guard that which we do not know? How can we guard the truth of who Jesus is as Christians if we do not know it and dive deep? Guarding some doctrine requires us to go deeper as Christians. It causes us to go deep into the things of God. After all, this is the God who has come to dwell among us. Christian, we are to guard this. And one of the greatest ways that the enemy works against us is not trying to stop us from saying the name of Jesus. One of the greatest ways the enemy works against us is trying to confuse us of who Jesus actually is. Think about it. Satan could care less if we talk about Jesus and get who he is wrong. He's not concerned whether we talk about Jesus as a good moral teacher or not. He's not concerned if we talk about Jesus, if he's just a prophet. He's not concerned about us talking about Jesus, if he's just one that we should imitate because of his good nature and character. You see, Satan could care less. Talk about Jesus all day, day, every day, as long as you want, folks. If you miss who Jesus rightly is. Yes, Jesus is a prophet. He's a great moral teacher. He's a great moral example, but he's much more. He's the one who is eternally God, who is also made flesh. 
who becomes fully man to dwell among us in order to rescue us. You see, the claims of the Incarnation are crucial, Christian. They're crucial for us to know who is this Jesus we're claiming to believe in. It's crucial for us to understand this Jesus and who it is we worship and who brings about salvation. This is the Jesus we worship. So in the Incarnation, there's two dangers that creep in that cause us to miss who Jesus rightly is. There's a plethora of those, but I want us to look at these two this morning. The first danger is in missing the incarnation is, is what is known as kin- the kenosis theory. That is that Jesus gave up some of his divine nature. That Jesus gave up some of his godness in becoming flesh. This argument, they, they like to say, comes from Scripture. So it comes from Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is where they get this idea. So if you have your Bible... Because we are wanting to to guard sound doctrine. Because we want to understand what is going on as Christians. Please turn there to Philippians 2, 5 through 11 in your Bible. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. From Philippians 2, 5 through 11, for the sake of context. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, they take this passage, those that that hold to this kenosis theory, and and if we're not careful as readers of this, if we read it quickly, we're almost persuaded by it to say that Jesus gave up some of his divine nature because we quickly read it and see that it says Jesus emptied himself. Oh, he, he must have emptied himself of his divine nature. What else? But that's a poor reading. It's a poor reading because it doesn't allow context to define what it is that Jesus is emptying himself of. Nor does it go with the rest of Scripture of how Jesus identifies himself. First, consider with me the poor context and poor reading. Yes, in verse 6 it says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This emptied himself, yes, That's not what is at stake here, whether or not he emptied himself. What he emptied himself of is. Jesus didn't empty himself of his divinity. He didn't empty himself of his divine nature, of his godness. Notice what the context drives. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself by leaving the side of the Father 
to come and add on to himself a human flesh, to be born and made in our likeness. Catch that. It's not by subtraction that Jesus empties himself, it's by addition. He adds to himself a human nature. That human nature, when you turn the pages too quickly, gets a paper cut. That human flesh that feels the elements of the cold and the heat. The physical nature, that flesh that grows tired and weary. You see, Jesus took this on as fully God in order to dwell with us. He did not give up who he was as the Son of God and fully God in his coming. And his miracles show this. How else could Jesus, who healed the blind, who healed the sick, who cast out demons, who walked on water, who raised the dead, be anybody less than that of fully God? This is who has come to dwell with us at Christmas. One who is fully God. So Christian, be careful of how you see Jesus. He cannot lose his divine nature in the fullness of it. Or we have something less than God who has come to dwell among man. And God has not sent his best. But he has. He has sent his son who is fully God to dwell among us. But that's one danger. We also have to be aware of the danger that comes about saying that Jesus was something less than fully man. That he only appeared to be that of man. And there's problems with that because if Jesus doesn't appear as fully man, as fully one of us, he can't identify with us. We could say, you know what, Jesus didn't understand what it was like to be human. The excuses begin. We try to justify our sin. Notice the words of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 17. Hear what they say. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was made fully human to fully identify with you and me. He became flesh, identified every bit of suffering we face as humans. Jesus was tired and he fell asleep in the boat. Jesus was hungry. He thirsted. He faced everything like us. He entered the world in the same way each one of us did, down the birth canal of our mother. He cried when he entered into the world like any good and healthy baby did. I'm sure he fell and scraped his knee as a little boy like any good boy does. Jesus was fully human for the sake of identifying with us. Yet he was without sin. Because unlike us, he was not born of Adam through a father. Jesus was conceived by that of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus did not have our sinful nature passed on to him. 
Jesus was fully human, but he was without sin so that he could lay down his life as the perfect sacrifice, having fully identified with each one of us. Christian, this is who has come at Christmas. One who is fully God and fully man, nothing less has come. And this one has come to dwell among us. He has come to dwell among us. He came to tabernacle among us. As John writes there in verse 14, uh, help if I go back to John, in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's intending here to, to call out this idea of tabernacling. Yes, our, our English translations translate it as dwell, but, but the same word in the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament was the same word as tabernacle. So here are the words of Moses in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As God came to tabernacle with his people in the, after the exodus, there in the tabernacle tent, God has come to tabernacle with man as one of us to dwell among us and us to live in his midst. So that we can fully see the glory of God. Catch that. As verse 14 continues, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son for the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has come to reveal the fullness of the Father to the world. So that all may know the Father and come to the Father through him. This is echoed down in verse 18. It says, no one has seen, ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus makes the Father known. Not even Moses saw this fullness. Hear the words of Exodus 33, 18 through 20. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Moses would only catch the back of the glory of God and see his goodness. Jesus has come to make him fully known. Because Jesus is one who is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who is being testified as the fullness of God. He does this in his character and he also does this in the eyewitness accounts. Look again back at, at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We'll come to the second half in a moment, but notice John bore witness about him and cried out. He cried out continually on behalf. This is the Son of God. This is the one who I, I write to you about or tell you that is coming, who ranks ahead of me. I'm telling you of him so that you can believe in him. 
John himself writes there back in verse 14, we have seen his glory, glories of the only son. John's saying very much like he does in his first epistle, we have seen this. John in, in John 1 and 1 and through 2, 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. You see what John's doing there in that just little phrase, we have seen his glory. He's echoing what he later writes in his first epistle. We've seen it. We've touched it. Like I'm declaring, I saw this glory. I saw it with my own eyes. John saw it with his own eyes. We've given you this double account of witness, which we looked at last week. We're telling you, this is the one who comes in the fullness of God's glory. But how, how have they seen this and how are we to believe them? <laughs> Look at the phrase there at the end of verse 14. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. This phrase grace and truth is repeated down in verse 17, which we'll come back to momentarily as well. But this grace and truth is essential. They're essential to what we believe as Christians. They're essential to the Christian faith. Because this grace and this truth define who God is. Let's once more turn back to Exodus. This time in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Hear what's said of God the Father. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. As the father was merciful and gracious, so is the son. Jesus has this character, this nature of grace about him, of showing mercy unto the world. He shows this same quality. He is his father's son, the only one from the father because of how he furthers this grace and this mercy to a world in need. Christian Jesus is the son of God and makes himself clear because of how he represents the father in perfect reflection of him. He does it and does not fail we can say we're made in the image of God, which is true. But friends, not one of us perfectly represents that image in our sinful nature. We fail to represent God rightly because we fail to show grace to one another. We fail to show love to one another. We fail to show kindness to one another. And I'm not talking about the stranger across the street. I'm talking about in our own homes. Husbands, Wives, how many times have you wronged your spouse and failed to show them grace? The same grace you expect them to show you. Jesus didn't fail on this. We do. 
Jesus comes to reveal this fullness of grace to the world. He also comes to represent truth, the truth of who God is to the world, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father apart from him. Jesus reveals that he alone is truth. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're trying to to search for truth and it doesn't go through the person of Jesus, you can keep on searching and you won't find it. You will not find truth apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is truth. He reveals the truth of the world in which we live and the problem of it. Everybody has their opinions about what's going on in the world right now as it just seems to be in a weird spin. The problem is, too often, even we within these walls try to understand it apart from the truth of who Jesus is. Our need of Him. Anyone who tries to to understand the world apart from Jesus can't rightly understand it. We can't understand the issues of the day apart from the truth of Jesus being the answer to those issues. He is truth. And we need to come to him for both truth and grace. Because this is the reason the Son has come. To reveal truth and grace to us. So go to him. Turn to him believe in him and give your full allegiance to him because he ranks above us and that's where we turn in our second point this morning the son and his superiority return back with me to verse 15 john bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom i said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me not only is this jesus important to know who he is as as the one who is fully god and fully man it's also to understand he ranks ahead of each and every one of us john first the baptist first calls this out and saying that look this was he of whom i said he comes after me ranks before me now catch this john is on the scene in public ministry before jesus He's also in the world. He's got a six-month advantage of age to Jesus. He's his six-month older cousin. John the Baptist is on the scene in public ministry before Jesus steps on. So John the Baptist, already being on the scene, has a, a rank of superiority as far as teaching and public ministry goes. Now, how many of you in the workplace have had been there established in a company and a young pup comes in and how many of you are going to say yep this one's ahead of me no you're going to make them earn it you're going to make them work their way up just like you did in the company to get that recognition you're not just going to hand it over to them maybe a few but not most do you see what john's doing he's saying look I'm established, but this one, he outranks me. He's before me because he was before me. Yes, my public ministry has been going longer. Jesus is now beginning. But this one, he ranks before me because he existed before me. 
He was there in the beginning with God. This is the one who has seen it all. This is the one who's been a part of it all. He ranks ahead of me. So I'm going to step out of the way. I'm going to hand the reins over to Jesus and allow him to be the one who ranks ahead, who ranks supreme. John the Baptist gets out of the way. So Jesus, though his ministry starts after John the Baptist, John says his ministry is more supreme than mine. Listen to him. He's going to even encourage his own disciples to go after Jesus. John the Baptist recognized Jesus ranks over him. But he not only ranks over John the Baptist, he ranks over Moses. Look there in verse 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now that's an important phrase and we're going to come back to that. But, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was not intended to reveal a superior grace. The law was not given to show the grace or the fullness of the grace of God. The law was given to reveal who God is in his nature. And it was to reveal who we are in our nature. It was to show us that we can't measure up to the law. Because the very essence of the law was built upon sacrifice. It was built on repetition of sacrifice. Think about it this way. The tabernacle of old, the temple of old, would have not smelt very pretty when you entered. You know, we have some who, who decorate our, our church and keep a, a, a nice smell throughout it. Wouldn't have been that way in the old system. Blood. Animal got spilt all over the floor, thrown on the table and the walls in order to atone for sin. And it would have had to been done over and over and over again. The blood shed on the altar. That's the old system. That's what the law came to do. The law is, is unveiled and revealed to us in the, the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sum up this law in its entirety. And yet, it was never intended to pour out the fullness of God's grace. Yes, it pours out a partial grace. It pours out a grace in allowing us to atone for sin and humility in acknowledging our sin and performing sacrifice. But it was to be done again over and over. But notice what Jesus brings there. What it says there at the end of verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Or back in verse 16, this grace upon grace, this greater grace comes in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has come to do. This very one who has come to take on human flesh has come to live perfectly as the perfect sacrifice in order to live and die to be the final sacrifice, to bring grace 
upon all who will believe. A mercy that never runs out. A grace that never runs out. That's what Jesus brings as he is the, the fullness of God is made flesh. He comes to die, to go to the cross. There's no point in celebrating the manger apart from the cross. It must run to the cross because that's why Jesus came. To sacrifice himself so that we can live in him. That's why grace and truth come through him. He reigns above Moses in this because he brings something greater. But because he brings something greater than us, we need to see that he too ranks before us, that he is superior over us. Friend, it is not being here on Sunday that saves you. It is not you living a, a certain moral lifestyle that saves you. It's none of those things. Your salvation doesn't come in who you are. It doesn't come by your own choosing, by your own willpower of saying, I'm saved. It comes through faith and faith alone in Christ alone. It comes by coming to the fountain of grace that is poured out in the blood of Christ and drinking it up regularly. Here in a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper at the end of our service. As we eat that bread and drink that cup in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us, we need to see that this is part of remembering that grace upon grace. That Jesus has shed his own blood for us so that we may continually taste that grace in coming to him. Christian, you see, it's not just a one-time thing that we come to the grace of God in Jesus. It's over and over and over again. We come to the fountain and drink of it because we continually rely on that grace. We continually depend upon Jesus for life and life everlasting. But we need to see that he must rank before us, that Jesus, the one who we must continually depend, is the one who ranks before us. Christian, as we consider our Christian lives, we need to see that if grace and truth come through Jesus, if it is from the fullness that we have received this grace upon grace, then Jesus should be the one taking center stage in our lives. My grandfather was a retired lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He served his country in fighting in Vietnam. He would have had the respect of many having the rank of lieutenant colonel. In a confession, I did not realize how high of a ranking that actually was until this week. He would have had very few in the Army who would have not had to turn to him and show him the respect because he ranked ahead of them. Only that of a colonel or a general would have his attention been turned and the others been a turn to that lieutenant or that colonel or that general to show a greater respect to. Otherwise, everyone below him would have turned and saluted him as he entered the room, giving that respect as a lieutenant colonel. 
Christian as Jesus ranks before us. Part of our growth as disciples of Christ is to give further and further way to him, to show him that respect, that honor, and glory. Part of our Christian discipleship is to die a little every day so that Jesus may reign more supreme in our hearts. I'm not talking about the hearts outside these walls. I'm talking about right here in our own hearts. We need to depend on this Jesus more and more and allow him to rank more supreme in our lives by dying to self every day. Because this Jesus, he ranks before us. And he invites us in to come and to follow him, to rest in him. The superior officer invites us to join him. Will you refuse him by holding on to self or will you lay it down and follow him faithfully? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace to us 